0: You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Do you remember when the world went into lockdown, March 2020? All of us found ourselves with a lot of time on our hands. Extracurricular activities stopped, jobs stopped, commuting to the office stopped, get-togethers stopped. And in the midst of a global pandemic, people almost instinctively took to baking bread. <laughs> just out of curiosity. how many? I'm sure there are some like avid bread bakers in here. I'm not talking to you. I'm just out of curiosity. How many people took their hand to try bread baking during the pandemic? Be honest. All right. I'm glad I wasn't the only one. Yeah. All right. In fact, so many people took to bread baking. Grocery stores couldn't keep flour and yeast on the shelves. In fact, I started bread baking and I was bartering, like, I will bake you bread if you'll give me some of your yeast. In the midst of uncertainty, there was just something comforting about a fresh baked loaf of bread. Now, what transforms a dense ball of dough into a well-risen, flavorful loaf of bread. Yeast. That's correct. It's yeast. It's a single-cell fungus, seemingly unimpressive. It's invisible to the naked eye. In fact, it's actually all around us. There's yeast in this room right now. You get an Amazon package. Guess what? There's yeast on that. There's yeast on your skin. It's in the air. It is everywhere and you can walk into market basket when you need it to bake some fresh bread so here's how it works you take this dry yeast and you activate it you bring it back to life with a little bit of warm water and some sugar and once that yeast has started to bubble and to froth you can smell it It, it, it's it's palpable and when it works and then you add it to your your dry mix and and when it works its way through the dough it starts to consume sugars and the flour And as it does, it excretes carbon dioxide and alcohol as byproducts. This is the process known as fermentation. And it's what allows the bread to rise. It's what strengthens the the gluten structures in the dough. And it's actually what contributes to the incredible flavor of bread. This unimpressive, invisible, single-cell fungus is actually what makes bread so Delightful. This morning, we're looking at First Peter chapter two, as Peter begins to unpack what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of God who are exiled in a foreign land. He's uh, last week we saw that in verse twelve, and he's saying, "Here's we are all elect exiles." He's walked through the picture of the gospel. He says, "Now here's how we live that out," and his answer is seemingly unimpressive. And ordinary, just like a single cell fungus. It's like yeast in the dough. On one hand, it's unimpressive. It's barely visible. And yet, given enough time, it works its way into the dough to bring about an incredible transformation. That is the rest of 1 Peter. He's saying, if we live like this, although it seems unimpressive, although it seems simply ordinary, it will work its way through the dough and it will have a a transformative impact remember verse 12 from last week Peter said keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation in other words Peter says it matters how we live as Christians And so that no matter what people might say, what false claims they might make against you, when they actually look at your life, they'll go, wait a minute, there's something different about these people. And over time, they will glorify God. Now, starting in verse 13 through the end of the book, Peter is going to address our conduct in various aspects of life. He's going to help us learn how we live in light of our new gospel reality and our new identity in Christ You remember, he's writing to Christians who are living in the first century, right around AD 60. And they're trying to figure out what what does it mean to be the people of God, living as citizens in the kingdom of God. While at the same time, that's one identity, at the same time being these foreign exiles living under the reign and rule of the Roman Empire. How does a holy nation live in the midst of a wicked pagan Roman culture? How, how, how do we as a chosen race and a royal priesthood live as subjects under the tyrannical rule of the emperor Nero? And though we're removed from that time period by 2,000 years, don't we have the same questions about our everyday matters? Like how do Christians relate to government? How do we relate to those who are in authority over us? What about the home? How do we interact with our neighbors? How do we respond to persecution and suffering? What about the church? How should it be structured? How do we respond to one another? All of these questions Peter will start to unpack throughout the rest of the book. Now this morning in our time we're going to work our way through the end of chapter 2 as Peter addresses how we live in submission to the authorities in our life, be it civil authorities of government or even unjust authorities in the workplace. And I think God has a sense of humor that he would choose me to speak about submission to authority because I've never been the poster child for submission, just one of God's little senses of humor. He would take a rebel like me who really just grits against authority, and I have to stand up here for 40 minutes and teach on why we should submit to authority. So first in verses 13 to 17, we'll see submission to civil authorities is a powerful apologetic for the gospel. And then second, in verses 18 to 20, we'll see that submission to unjust authorities is an evidence of transformative grace. And finally, in verses 21 to 25, we'll see that submission to suffering is is our cruciform pattern to follow. So three movements, number 1, submission to civil authorities is a powerful apologetic for the gospel. Number 2, submission to unjust authorities is an evidence of transformative grace, and sub- and finally submission to suffering is our cruciform pattern to follow. So look with me at verse 13 and 14. As we first see that submission to civil authorities is a powerful apologetic for the gospel. In verse 13, Peter writes Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, Peter gets right to it here. That first word that we translate, be subject, is the Greek word for submission. So it could say submit to or be subject to. Now, I know right right when we hear that word, it's everybody's favorite word. You know, I know we like to put our favorite words and phrases and tattoo them on our body. I've never seen someone with the word submit or I love submission. I've just never seen it before. We hate this word, right? Now, on one hand, it's because there's, there's a negative connotation associated with the word. Right? In general, we just have a predisposed animosity towards authority. I don't know if it's just in our American DNA, we're like the rebels who started our own country. We just don't like authority. So when we hear, be subject, we're just immediately suspicious. And in particular, it's likely that you've had a negative experience with someone in a position of authority. So that predisposed animosity towards it has been reinforced by uh, someone who's abused authority in your life. And so we've just got this, this, this really suspect uh, predisposition to want to reject authority. So when we hear Peter say, be subject, we kind of tune out. We don't want to hear him. We kind of cringe when we hear the word submission. But I'd like to invite you to suspend your disbelief, your impulse to cringe for just a moment. The word on its own simply just refers to the right ordering of relationships and terms of roles and responsibilities. That's just what the word means. It it means... When you have a hierarchical structure where someone has a God-given authority over you, submission is, is referring to how, how do we uh, be responsible for the things we're responsible to and how do we maintain our position in that role. That's it. It's just, it's just talking about well-ordered relationships so that there's clear expectations around roles and responsibilities within those relationships. That's all that the word is referring to. It has absolutely nothing to do with worth, meaning, and value. So if, you have, if you're in a relationship where there's uh, authority, the person in authority over you is not more uh, valuable than you. Do you get that? That, that? We have to understand that at first, that in our essence, ontologically, big word for you, it just means in your core, like what it means to be human, the President of the United States is, has no more God-given image and dignity and value and worth than anyone in this room or a homeless person on the street. All of us have the exact same God-given worth, dignity, and value. None of it is attached to role and responsibility. And if we can keep those two things separate to realize... Uh, roles in submission have nothing to do with our worth, we can begin to at least get our minds around it. So here's what Peter's saying. There are human institutions that God has set up that play a critical role in structuring society, be it governors all the way up to the top, and in his case with the emperor as supreme. Remember, he's writing in the Roman Empire. So Caesar is emperor, he's supreme. And he's saying God has actually set up these Uh, these human institutions, and they help structure society. And one of their primary roles is to punish evildoers and praise those who do good. And at its most basic level, we get that. We know that civil authorities play a critical role in limiting evil, law and order, even when they're flawed. This this is not a sermon about... um, Are there flaws in our legal justice system? We can just assume that because we're broken, we live in a sin-soaked world that there are. But what we're saying is, at its most basic level, we would prefer law and order over anarchy and chaos. Legal codes and just punishments keep everyday people from acting out the evil impulses of the heart. So here's how it works. You're driving down the road, you're on the Mass Pike, someone cuts you off. Your first impulse is run them off the road. And listen, that's a laughter of recognition because you know it's true. You know you've had those thoughts, right? Now here's what happens. Almost uh, as quick as it comes in, you go, wait a minute, can't do that. I don't want to spend years in a prison cell. It's just not worth it. And you start to come, you like move yourself back off the edge. Got to be careful I don't fall into the water here. Can only take one step back today. Right? That's what happens. You you just know, like, whatever evil impulses start to surge, you go, well, the consequences for doing that, acting that out, are far worse than this momentary uh, uh, impulse to get retaliation. And so it, it keeps honest people honest. It keeps basically good people good. Because we don't want the punishment. And while it's less common in our day, during the first century, the Roman Empire would, uh, would commend and publicly praise those who do well. So if you uh, used your wealth to, to, to be a benefactor and to benefit people, they would publicly commend you. Maybe they'd put a statue of you in your uh, uh, part of town. And so Peter's saying, listen, uh, we all get it. The, the, the government uh, helps punish evildoers and it also provides a system for commending those who do well. In our day, we might um, give them a plaque or uh, like a ceremonial key to the city, right? The basic point is simple. Government serves a pivotal role in providing structure to the society. It's helpful in building roads and maintaining them. And there's all kinds of reasons that we could look to and go, government has a place to play in society. And Peter's saying, Christians should respect that. We should respect that. Now, did you notice that little phrase? Peter said, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. He said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Peter is rooting, grounding, founding our submission to civil government, not for the sake of government itself, but for the Lord's sake. You see what he's doing? He's saying our submission to the government should be motivated by our allegiance to God rather than primarily out of our allegiance to a particular party or even to a particular government. Paul actually expands on this in Romans 13, 1 and 2. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been, uh, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So here's Paul's point. God is the ultimate authority. There is no uh, self-derived, self-evident authority other than God, and God has uh, lent out some of his authority to governing institutions. They are his sub-authorities. He's the one who established them. So when, when we wrote the American Constitution and established this government, we're like, we did that. And Paul's saying, no, God did that. He used you to do that, but it was God who, who, who set that government up. And they serve his purposes. And when we resist those authorities, we're actually resisting God. So this means we submit to our local government regardless of if we voted for them, regardless if we agree with their platforms, So this whole notion of not my president is simply out of step with what it means to be subject to civil authorities. And because God has ordained these authorities, that frees us from either error. On the one hand, feeling like the world is going to collapse when our political party is not in office. You see that, right? Every every time there's a big presidential election, half the country, if if the vote doesn't go their way... They think everything is going to fall apart immediately. While the other party is rejoicing, the other party is boohooing and doomsdaying, right? And then in four years when it flops and switches, the roles get reversed. This other group over here is celebrating. This other group over here is saying, I can't believe where this country has gone. When you trust that God is the one in control and he's the one establishing, it frees you from putting all your hope and stock in either party. It also frees you from the other error, which is feeling like your political party is going to be the one to usher in some golden age. Friends, there's never actually been a golden age. <laughs> Since the fall, it's been uh, sin and darkness. We might have you know, some moments of, of, of glimmering hope, but no party, no government, no country, no person, no president, No party is going to usher in the kingdom of God except the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where all of our hope, all of our stock is supposed to be. Now let me address another question that you might be thinking right now. Does submission to government mean that we have to violate our Christian conscience? If a governor or if a president or if a police officer uh, tells you to do something, commands you to do something that would directly violate scripture, Does our submission to government mean we have to say yes? And the answer to that is, of course not. Remember who's writing this. This is Peter. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel when they told him to shut up or go to jail. And you know what Peter did? He just kept on preaching. Here's what he said, Acts 5, 27 to 29. And when they had brought them, this is uh, the apostles, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you... Not to teach in this name, that's the name of Jesus, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So the council's saying, Hey, didn't we tell you to stop doing this? What are you doing? You're, you're, you're going against our sanctions. And Peter and the other apostles said, We must obey God rather than men. He's like, Listen, at the end of the day, we fear the Lord. We're in submission to him. And so when you tell us to stop preaching, we just simply can't do that. It violates our Christian conscience. There's lots of other examples of godly, civil disobedience in the Bible. In Exodus, you've got the brave midwives who were right to disobey Pharaoh's command to kill all the Hebrew male babies. Daniel was right to pray to the Lord in direct contradiction to the law of Nebuchadnezzar. Likewise, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were right to refuse to worship the golden statue. Paul was right to rebuke Roman authorities for violating their own laws by their conduct towards him as a Roman citizen. And there's plenty more. Here's the point. You can disobey the government and civil authorities when they directly command you to violate Scripture or your Christian conscience. In that case... Civil disobedience is not merely permissible, but it's actually the righteous, even mandatory thing to do. But that said, you can't simply disobey because you don't like their rules. Like you have to actually chapter and verse it for me. You've got to actually be able to articulate the reason for your disobedience. And it needs to be rooted and grounded in Scripture. Going back to the pandemic, there was a lot of rules and regulations and things on churches, and I didn't like all of them. In fact, I really disliked a lot of them. I didn't like not meeting for six months. I didn't like some of the things we had to do. But our church followed every single one of those ordinances. Not because we were excited about it, but because we wanted to do our very best to submit to the civil institution's Helping govern our land, regardless of our personal posture towards it. And we could not find any case where we were violating our Christian conscience. We had lots of discussion around it. In the elder room and in and, 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 uh, member meetings and all of that. As a good rule of thumb, given our context as 21st century Americans civil disobedience will likely be the exception not the rule so if you find yourself about to make a move towards civil disobedience because it should be the exception rather than the rule that that should at least be a check to go wait a minute I I need to be clear that that my uh, disobedience here is being rooted and grounded in an actual Christian conviction not my personal decision at the end of the day Governments from the beginning of time until now are an extension of God's authority to serve his purposes. So for the Christian, our ultimate allegiance is to God. Our ultimate submission is to God. So when we're submitting to our local governments, we're actually, Peter says, submitting to the Lord. First and foremost, that's Peter's imperative. That's the command. Now look with me at verse 15 to see the why behind the what. Peter says, for this is the will of God. People always ask me as a pastor, what is the will of God? And there's several places where it just says, this is the will of God. And then right after it is the will of God. So this is one of those places you can go, like I have direct revelation from God disclosed to me, this is the will of God. Okay, here it is. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter says, listen, I know it's getting rough out there as Christians. We're marginalized. We're ostracized. We're losing jobs. We're losing positions in society. And things are getting worse. In fact, Christians were seen at this point as Uh, weird and out of step with the larger society. If you're a student of history and you read uh, ancient history, you'll find that, that, that people were writing about Christians at this time. And here's some things that they had against them. First, they'll tell you that early Christians refused to fight in Caesar's wars. There was nothing just about some of these later wars. And they just wouldn't do it. By and large, Christians would not go to the gladiator games to watch people killed for sport. It just seemed like a logical outworking that if these humans are made in the image of God, going and watching them, getting a, a free loaf of bread, and cheering on as people are maimed and mangled and murdered, that just seemed out of step with what it means to be made in the image of God. It seemed like a clear violation of the sanctity and value of human life. They also didn't support the killing of infants. Did you know at this time it was gruesomely common for people to abandon newborn baby girls at the trash heaps? Because if you had a girl, there were all sorts of financial burdens. The dowry and and ensuring that this uh, little girl would be married off one day. And some people just said, you know what, I'd rather have a boy. I don't want all of the responsibility. And so a woman would give birth. They'd see it was a girl. And they'd walk that newborn baby down to the dump to be abandoned to die. And Christians just said, yeah, that just seems wrong. That's wrong. Christians said it was unacceptable. And this is actually where the first orphanages and the the, the formalization of adoption started. If you are adopted here today, you can thank Christianity for that. They also believed men and women were equal. The whole equality thing didn't start with the progressive movement here in America. It started with Christianity. Christians were the first to elevate women to the same dignity, worth, and status as their male counterparts. If you lived in Rome in AD 60 as a woman, you were just slightly more valuable than a slave. And I mean slightly. Slightly. And their their contemporary counterparts thought this was just incredibly bizarre. Believe it or not, the idea of the equality of men and women was, was considered shocking. Christians also believed that sex outside of marriage was wrong. Also shocking to the world. Christians willingly served the poor, which seemed contrary to the larger society's class structures. They were just unbelievably comfortable with different social statuses and so when they would see a Christian uh, 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 serving the poor they just what are you doing that's who they are they're not worth that and more importantly Christians believed that Jesus was Lord not Caesar and that Jesus alone deserved worship devotion and allegiance and for that Christians were actually called atheists See, the Romans believed in many gods, right? So for the, for the Christians to reduce it down to one was basically like zero, so they were called atheists. You don't believe in our gods. What's the point of my little history lesson? Peter is saying, because of our beliefs, Because of our kingdom values, we are going to be seen as out of step. We are going to be seen as troublemakers. We are going to be seen as a threat to the structure and order that Rome so dearly loves. But, he says, if we can be good citizens, as much as we're able to do in accordance with scriptures, in line with our Christian conscience, he's saying, over time... Our doing good will put to silence all of the ignorant claims that are made against Christians. So he says, here's what you need to do. Take the freedom that Christ died to purchase. Remember that in chapter 1? Peter says we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Peter says take that blood-bought freedom and use it to serve the Lord. Our lives are not our own. And so we are to voluntarily choose to use our blood-brought freedom to serve the Lord. And so we should be proactively doing good. And when we do, we give a powerful witness for Christ, an apologetic, a defense. So this doesn't, doing good doesn't just mean a quiet life of moral excellence, though it certainly is a good start. But Peter has, a, has in mind a kind of good that's able to be seen. It's tangible. It's not mere private acts of Christian piety, but deeds that would be generally accepted and acknowledged by society as good. It's very similar to what Jeremiah says in chapter 29, verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now think about it. Peter has been drawing on this exilic theme. Right in chapter 1, you are chosen exiles, elect exiles, right? In the same way that the Jews were taken from their homeland to force to live in Babylon, Peter's saying... We, too, are like exiles in a modern-day Babylon. In fact, at the end of his letter, he's going to call Rome Babylon. That's what he's doing here. And just like the Jews were to seek the welfare of their city in their Babylon, we are to do the same. So that means serving as Little League Coaches. That means running for political office. That means serving in schools. That means picking up trash around town. That means serving the poor. That means giving of your time and treasure to actively and tangibly do good. Peter's saying Christians should be the absolute very best citizens because it gives a powerful witness to the truth, goodness, and beauty of the gospel to the point that it eventually silences her critics. Again, think about who's writing this. This is Peter. Remember in the Gospels when the civil authorities show up to arrest Jesus? What does he do? He pulls out his sword and he cuts off a guy's ear. Not really like the poster kid for submission to civil authorities, is he? But after some years of processing the teachings of Jesus... After some time of the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification, the same guy who cut off a a soldier's ear is saying, guys, we need to submit to our local government. Peter has come to see that the kingdom values of love and honor have a more powerful, transformative power than swords and daggers. It's like yeast working through the dough. Give it some time. And these tiny acts of love and grace that on their own seem unimpressive on their own, are virtually invisible to the naked eye. They move and they work in such a way to bring about a radical transformation and a powerful apologetic for the truth, goodness, and beauty of the gospel. Did you know that in about 300 years, Christians living like this, though uh, suffering and and sanctioned persecution was dialed up, uh, Christianity completely transformed the Roman Empire. In fact, the world as we know it today would be unimaginable without Christianity. Everything, you know, I just love it. You know, you see the news, you see uh, different social media feeds and outlets and all that. All this talk of like human rights and and, and everything. It's like, yeah, Christians had that like on uh, lockdown like 2,000 years ago. You know what I mean? Everything that we... uh, we love and value in our society that's good, you can pretty much thank Christianity for. That's Peter's first point. Submission to civil authorities is a powerful apologetic for the gospel. Now here's the second point. Submission to unjust authorities is an evidence of transformative grace. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust If Peter's first point was hard to swallow, this one is just downright impossible, isn't it? Peter specifically, in this moment, addresses slaves and servants. Now before we go any further, I want us to be careful not to read our own American history into Peter's context. Slavery in the first century was categorically different than the American slave trade. Although there's some similarities, it was different. For starters, slavery in the ancient world was not based on racism or ethnocentrism. It had nothing to do with the color of a person's skin. It was more of a social status. So you might enter into slavery if your country was um, overthrown by another country. And prisoners of war were were taken as slaves. You might be born into it. Or you might voluntarily enter into it if you had gone into debt and couldn't pay your bills. Slavery at this time was more like a, uh, a semi-permanent employee without legal freedoms. You could pay off your debt. You could purchase your, uh, your freedom. Some slaves were even paid for work. Slaves were often educated. Some served as doctors, teachers, musicians, and household stewards. So it was a lot wider of a scope than we would have understood it. That said, here's where the crossover happened. They were still slaves. They were still considered property. They were still considered the lowest class in society. And that said, they could be used and abused at their owner's discretion. The entire economic system of the Roman Empire relied upon slavery. In fact, at this time, about one in four people would have been slaves. Now, before we go further into Peter's argument it's important that I uh, address an objection that you might be wrestling with right now. Why, instead of saying, be subject to your masters, why didn't Peter say, slaves, overthrow and escape your masters? That seems to be more in line with our mentality. Why doesn't Peter give a biblically sanctioned treatise on the horrors of slavery and how Christians should work to overthrow this unjust practice of society? Well, in general... The Bible never condones or promotes slavery. You can't find a verse where it says, hey, this is the will of God, just like we saw. But that said, it's written at a time when slavery is a common widespread practice. There is not a nation living at this time that has not in, uh, 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 is not based upon um, slavery and servitude. If you go through and read the Old Testament, you'll see that the, the Bible gives incredible dignity to slaves and governs how their masters should treat their slaves with dignity and respect. In fact, if they were to abuse their slaves, they could be punished for it. Further, by the time you get into the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, you have the practice of capturing people for the purpose of selling them as slaves, a.k.a. slave trading, condemned as evil. So when Paul is writing to Timothy, he says slave trading is evil. It's sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, Paul encourages anyone who's in slavery, in servitude, to seek freedom whenever possible. In Paul's letter to Philemon, Paul encourages this slave owner to receive his runaway slave Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. The very fact that right now Peter has a category in his mind that a slave could be treated unjustly, Raises the status of a slave to an image bearer much higher than his contemporaries. To, 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 uh, according to the leading moral philosophers of his day, you couldn't speak about injustice towards a slave because it was a categorical error. It would be like talking about breaking a chair and saying, well, you just treated that chair unjustly. You see what I'm saying? So there's just not even a moral category for it. And Peter's saying, no, no, there is a moral category for it because they're made in the image of God. This would have been like the front line. The Bible, the literature of the Bible would have been as far left progressive in the current society on slavery as anything you would find in its day. And so what I think is going on there. Is there's a recognition that this little ragtag group of early Christians have not gained the status and uh, ability to overthrow this, this societal structure. And yet they're planting the seeds and the structures that would eventually do the very thing. It's critically important to make it clear that the, stru- the scriptures are not pro-slavery. That said, Peter's goal in this moment is not to protect or preserve the practice of slavery, but to advance the kingdom of God and the ethics that support it, to set loose this kind of gospel yeast that will work its way through the dough and provide transformation to the culture at large. So that said, let's look at this text. Peter addresses slaves and servants and tells them to be subject to them. It's important to remember... That before he addresses them as slaves, earlier in his letter, how did he address these people? He reminds them of their truer, more foundational identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, proclaimers of God's mercy. Now just think about that for a minute. If you're a slave, you have no status in your society. And yet Peter has just told you, you have a truer, better identity. See what he's doing there? He's saying, because of Christ, you're more than a slave. You're more than a servant. But he also gets down into the everyday practical level to say, until you're free or until the tide of society changes, slaves and servants must be subject to their masters with respect. And here's where it gets tough. Not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust. It's important to keep in mind, just like our submission to civil authorities has a, a, an understood caveat that our obedience should never violate scripture or sin against the Lord. The same is true for these servants. That same understanding would be there. Now listen, I do believe that as 21st century Americans, we can probably make a wider application to us sitting here today because none of us are, are sitting here as slaves. We all live under different uh, types of authorities, be it bosses, managers, mothers, fathers, husbands, governors, police officers, the, the list goes on. But for a moment, I just want us to enter in to the person who might be reading this in eighty, 60, who was a slave, who was a servant, and would would, would be hearing the, the, the sharp edge of this text. See, if we too quickly move past the original audience, we can miss the whole point. You and I might have tough days at the office, we might be treated unfair by our bosses, we might be passed up again for the promotion that we deserve, but at the end of the day, Peter's command here would have been excruciatingly difficult to receive. And we just need to acknowledge that and enter into that for a minute. So the Bible does not shrink back from the hard, sharp edges of reality. And I think if we can enter into that tension, We can actually really feel what Peter is saying here. That we are called to endure and submit with respect even to injustice, even to unjust authorities. And just like before, Peter doesn't give this command and leave it there. He gives us the why behind the what. Look at verse 19. Peter says, this, what's he referring to? This submission to unjust authorities. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, let me help you trace Paul's argument here. He says, Look, first of all, if you sin and disobey and get a beating for it, that's kind of on you, right? In other words, you're getting what you deserve. If you disrespect, dishonor, and disobey your master, the retribution you receive is on you. There's no um, spiritual credit for that. That's not really persecution. So if you're a terrible employee and get fired, you can't come in here and be like, man, I've really been suffering persecution for my faith. No, you're a terrible employee. Right? Right? That's not the kind of redemptive suffering the Bible is talking about, and it's not the kind of redemptive suffering that will transform you. But then Peter says, don't miss this, if you do good and suffer for it, then this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In fact, Peter says it twice. Peter says it twice. Now, why is this a gracious thing? Well, first of all, if you endure suffering at the hand of an unjust authority and you continue to do so because you recognize a higher allegiance to Christ, if you do so in recognition that I am doing this for the Lord's sake, then it's an evidence of God's grace being given to you because that's what drives endurance in the face of suffering. In other words, when obeying Jesus means more to you than comfort or relief from suffering, it means God's grace is at work in your life. Paul David Tripp explains, when I suffer because of allegiance to Christ, when I'm willing to lose reputation, to lose possessions, to lose precious things, to suffer even personally for the sake of Christ, that's something that can only be born out of worship to God. That kind of willingness towards personal sacrifice is only going to happen when God is the most valuable treasure in your heart. And not only... Is it an evidence that God's grace has begun a good work in you? It actually mean, it's actually the means by which God works more and more grace into your hearts. So not only is it an evidence, but it's actually transformative. God uses the hardest moments, the trials, our suffering, to take us down roads we would never go on our own to do a work that couldn't be done any other way. In other words, the reason it's grace to suffer unjustly, it's because God uses these moments to change and to shape you into the image of Christ. And as you endure, it becomes this tangible testimony of your allegiance to and affection for Jesus. Now please hear me. The sermon's like full of caveats. This is not a verse that promotes staying at a job where you're being abused even though you could leave. This is not, these aren't verses defending abusers and silencing victims. Please don't read that into this. Don't use the extremist of examples to weaken biblical commands. Listen to this. The Bible always assumes wisdom and discretion as we apply the principles and the commands in Scripture. Always. Always. So if you go, but what about this example? And I go, yeah, that's an example. Don't stay there. (laughs) That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about someone in a very hard place who has no other recourse. And he's saying, listen, I know it seems impossible. I know it seems like there's no way out, but trust that the Lord sees you. The Lord is with you and your suffering at the hand of injustice is never wasted. That's the point. It's always a means of God's grace. Where we have helps and systems to find justice, pursue it. We did a whole series on justice and we said, Pursue justice, it's a good thing. We've got to read the Bible in its total completion. But when our systems fail us, know that God is sovereign. He is at work and our suffering is never wasted. So friends, we are first called to submit to the authorities that God places in our life, even when they act unjustly towards us because it is an evidence of God's transformative grace. Now real quickly, last section. Submission to suffering is our cruciform pattern to follow. These might be some of the best verses in the whole book, if you were looking for a little section to memorize, it would be these. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By Jesus' wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. One of the things I love about Peter... As he never strays too far from the gospel. And here he is again, reminding Christians of our motivation for everything that we do. He says, suffering, injustice, persecution, or hardship is a calling for the Christian. Do you notice that? He says, for to this, all that he just said, you have been called. That word calling is like vocation. In other words, Jesus is saying, Christian, enduring suffering is Your job. It's what Christ has called us to. In fact, later in the letter, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, he's going to say, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening. Look at me. Of all people, Christians should know that suffering is just a given reality of living in a broken and sin-soaked world. And Peter follows this cruciform, cross-shaped logic. He says, look, first of all, Jesus suffered and died for you. He died for you and he did for you that which you could not do for yourself. He procured your salvation and he committed no sin, not one. That makes him a perfect sacrifice, perfectly fit to atone for your and my sin. And it means that his righteousness, that perfect life he lived, was 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 lived so that he could give it to you. And what's more, Peter says he bore our sins and his body. In other words, on the cross, his perfect, sinless body became tainted with sin for the first time. Listen, he didn't theoretically feel our sin. He bore them. He put them on and he felt the sting of the curse. These verses in Peter Parallel Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Speaking of the Messiah to come, Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter's just riffing on Isaiah here. And he's saying, We were wound, he was wounded for our transgression, and he was stricken that we might be redeemed. He was punished that we might be brought back to him. And he's saying, Listen, if you didn't think it was, if you don't think it's fair that you were, that you're suffering, that you're treated unjustly, he's saying, Look at Jesus. He's the only ever truly innocent sufferer. Perfectly innocent, never did anything, never deserved anything. And so he's saying, if, if Jesus endured suffering, though he didn't deserve it, why would we think we would have anything better? Peter says, not only did he suffer to secure your salvation, did you notice he said, it was given for us as an example for us to follow The Greek word for example here is a word hypogrammon. You know what it means? It was a word used in elementary education. So when children would learn their alphabet, when they would learn their letters, there would be an example letter. And what would they do? They would take their little fingers and they would trace it. A pattern to trace and learn their letters. In the same way, Peter says, Jesus is like that pattern. He's like that example. And we are to trace with our lives, to follow him, even in his sufferings. What was that pattern? Though he was mocked, he did not, not mock in return. Though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. No sin, no threats, no retaliation. He simply endured. And don't miss this. He entrusted himself to him. Who judges justly. So, what looked like defeat, if you had been there that day and saw Jesus on the cross, you would have said, That's defeat, not victory. But really, it was the ultimate victory. If you had been standing there that day, you would have said, God, this man did nothing. This is just senseless, meaningless, purposeless suffering for suffering's sake. And yet, it was actually bringing about the redemption of God's people. This is the cruciform pattern. What seems like defeat, what seems like senseless, meaningless, purposeless suffering. Though you can't understand why you're supposed to submit even to unjust authorities, remember, Jesus has called us to it. He's called us to this cruciform pattern. He's called us to serve a God who is completely trustworthy and able to work everything for good. So when it seems like defeat, it will actually be used for victory. What seems like meaningless, senseless, purposeless suffering one day will become clear and you will see for what it is for your good and God's glory. Friends, this is not our home. We are chosen exiles, elect sojourners, called to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, exiled in a foreign land. And as Peter helps walk that out, We've heard him today. He's so clear. We're to submit to civil authorities that God has placed an authority over us. And as we live out the gospel, as we pursue good, our very lives become a powerful witness, a powerful apologetic for the gospel. And you can just expect there will going to be times when authorities in your life are going to treat you unjustly. But friends, endure Because not only is it evidence of the grace of God in your life, God will use it to transform you. And finally, Peter wants us to, he just wants to set the expectation that our very lives are going to trace the cruciform pattern of suffering that Jesus lived out for us.